Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to PM Mood, the no talking points, no bullshit podcast that takes you behind the curtain, off the red carpet, and to the front lines of progress with change makers and innovators that are doing the work to shift our culture and expand our social impact. I am so, so excited to welcome to PM Mood the wonderful, the fabulous scholar, activist, public speaker, creator, brilliant mind behind professional black girl, Dr. Yaba Blay. Welcome to PM Mood. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. You know, I have to tell people that if you have not seen the web series Professional Black Girl, if you are not following Professional Black Girl on Instagram, you are missing out. Everybody who knows me knows that I am full of doom and gloom but the place that i go to for sunshine for happiness for the celebration of black women is professional black girl yeah but tell me what made you launch professional black girl you know professional black girl was a project that i actually didn't set out to make into a thing it kind of became a thing i actually was trying to do another show that didn't pan out but essentially i was living in north carolina for about three years in durham and when i moved there i came across one of the largest beauty supply stores I have ever seen in my entire black life. <laughs> um, it is a converted <laughs> grocery store. So they're like wow. something aisles of product and hair and just all kinds of things. And I have always loved beauty supply stores. So random actually had aspirations of owning one. And so really? the first time I, oh yeah, the first time I went there, I was there for like two hours and it was just like, an adventure for me. And so, of course, I had moved to a new city. And so my homegirls were coming to visit and see about me. And every time one would come, I'm like, you want to go to Beauty World? And so we'd be in Beauty World like kids in a candy store. And I mean, we could go down an aisle 
open up a bottle of pink oil moisturizer, smell it, and immediately be transported back to our team. Mm -hmm. And what I recognized was that, you know, we bonded so much over not just beauty culture, but what felt like essentially a black girl experience. And so I just had this bright idea. I wanted to film another series that would be based in the beauty supply store. Unfortunately, the proprietor of Beauty World would not let me film in the store, which is a whole nother critical conversation. But in any case, mm. the plan originally was to do this show in the beauty supply store and then to end each segment with a feature of what I was calling a professional black girl. At that time, I had already started using the hashtag professional black girl as a way to note and shout out things that I saw that were like peak black girlness. And so when I say professional black girl, the professional part is subversive, right? Mm -hmm. Again, attached to that moment in time in my life, I was teaching at an HBCU, which I felt was, you know, going to be a great homecoming, which it was for the most part, because I had spent most of my career teaching at PWIs. But mm -hmm. what I noticed was that my Black women colleagues and counterparts, many of them were training our Black women students away from themselves, meaning they were saying things to them you know, that you have to look this way, dress this way, speak this way in order to be seen as professional in the quote unquote real world. So whether they were that doing that wearing... at a HBCU, this respectability, oh, I mean, because that's like peak respectability politics right there. I mean, yeah, but again, you know, with proper contextualization, we know the history of HBCUs, right? Yeah. That many mm -hmm. of them weren't even started by black people. They were started by well-meaning white folks who wanted to show Negroes how to act. So it's in line mm. with the history, right, that you have to basically change who you are in order to be received well in the quote-unquote real world. And so, you know, having students who might have been named Keisha Danielle being advised to go by Kay Danielle or being advised to put on wow. another voice, you know, when they answer the phone for a job interview and things of that nature. And, you know, me, too black for my own good, I was completely, you know, <laughs> outdone. Because I'm, I, if you could see me right now, my eyes are like wide open. <laughs> like I am like outdone to put on the fake, yeah. to put on what? Take the bass yeah. out of your voice for a job I mean, interview? To take the black out of your voice. Come on. You know, and again, it's no particular shade to HBCUs alone because most of the world acts that way, right? Most of the world treats us that way. Most of the world has that expectation of us that we have to change fundamentally who we are in order to be received well. And so me saying professional black girl was a way for me to turn that language on its head so that if you're a little black girl, you know, dancing in front of your computer, TikToking, like that's professional. You know, if you got your baby hairs laid, that's professional. And so the things that I connected as like peak black girlness, I was calling that professional black girl. And so I just connected those dots. And so the first season, if you watch the web series, it's mm -hmm. essentially all my homegirls who came to visit. And I did segments with each of them talking about what made them professional black girls. And so I knew that folks would enjoy it and appreciate it. I was not prepared for it becoming a thing. Usually the projects and campaigns that I've done, I've got a plan somewhere in mm -hmm. my head. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a plan for this. It really just became what it is and what it's become on its own. I mean, did you realize just how needed it was, right? Like, did the need surprise you that people were, you know, essentially, and I said this at the top, you created an oasis for black women in the desert of our lives. We are so invisibilized 
in so many spaces yeah. and places and you see us. Were you shocked by that? The one thing that you didn't plan, right, to <laughs> pop off really did pop off on its own. I wasn't surprised or shocked. It definitely took me aback, but I rolled with it. You know, here we are. Y'all love it. Let's keep it going. I wasn't prepared for it, if anything. And I really did. Like I said, I didn't have a vision for it, and I didn't know what it would take to keep it going. But we kept going. And so what's interesting is, you know, it started as a web series. I posted it on YouTube and to Facebook. And then when it was over, of course, folks are like, what's next? And I'm like, well, I don't have any more money, so I don't know what's next. So that's when I launched the Instagram page. So the Instagram Mm -hmm. page actually came almost a year after the first season of the web series launched. And that was just a way to try and hold folks over. And so it has really grown in those last almost three years now. Then I'm like, okay, I want a season two. Then we're going to have to create it. And so I launched the Kickstarter and was able to raise the funds needed in order to film season two, which is based in New Orleans, and that Kickstarter, we made goal in two days. And by the end of the 30-day campaign, we had almost doubled it. And so again, it was just really affirming. And again, just really making me aware, as you said, how much it was really needed and how much we just really want to see ourselves. And so if I was shocked by anything, I think I was shocked by the simplicity of it. You know, like we're not asking for much, like even in the spaces that we would name black, right, in the media and the quote-unquote black shows that we get, the black programming that we get, it's still a particular type of blackness. It's still, you know, whether it's stereotypical Mm -hmm. or whether it's one that's aligned with respectability, everybody can't relate. So either you're looking down on it and being too critical of it, or you're aspiring to be that. And there's really not a lot of middle ground to say, like, that's me. That's a reflection of me just as I am. And so I really believe that particularly for black women and for black girls, that's what professional black girl represents for them. It's just a simple reflection of who we are without judgment you know, and what, with lots of affirmation. One of the things that I particularly love, and I mean, full disclosure to people listening, I send Yaba pictures and videos like everybody <laughs> else does on a regular basis. I see something, I'm like, <gasps> This has to be posted. Mm -hmm. Normally, you've already seen it and have already put it in your collection. But one of the things that I do love is when you kind of check people in the comment section, you know, you can kind of see in some ways with some posts how respectability politics kind of comes in, where you'll post a video, like you said, of a young black baby girl, you know, dancing or rapping or whatever, and then always in the comments will be, well, I hope she knows her ABCs, or like, (laughs) I hope, you know, I I hope she's getting an education, or that mother shouldn't have done, you know. So how do you deal with, again, you check folks in the comments, but I know that it must be disheartening too, right? Because you're creating this space to celebrate all the different layers and levels and contextualizations of blackness, and yet you see that play out. I mean, at first, I mean, I was, of course, taking it personal, not just because it was my project, but it's also me. You know what I mean? I don't see myself separate from black women and girls in the variety of ways that we show up in the world. Um, But I think, if anything, what was disheartening, and I say was in the past tense, because now, in this moment, I make conscious decisions about who I'm going to engage and who I'm not. A lot of times, I let the comments sit there and let the community deal with them, or Mm. I just delete and block them. Right. You know, I don't want to spend too much time in that negative space. But the thing that is hurtful and disheartening is, for the most part, yeah, they're white trolls that come through and say whatever they say, but a lot of it is from us. Mm. And so... 
again, me trying to meet folks where they are, not trying to judge. I know where those comments come from because, again, there is this anxiety about how we present ourselves in the world and what that will mean ultimately for our conditions in this country as if those things are aligned, as if white supremacy is actually making a decision where you're doing something this way and that's why we are treating you this way. One has nothing to do with the other, right? And so I think for me it's more disheartening that we, same situation with having gone to an HBCU, having taught at an HBCU, having worked at an HBCU, it's disheartening to know that a lot of times we are most critical of ourselves, but again, it's very much deeply seated in internalized white supremacy. And Mm -hmm. so again, you know, I make decisions about who I engage, but it also fuels me to want to do it more. The thing that's also interesting and I'm keenly aware of right now and I question is I don't know that professional black girl would be what it is or would have been able to become what it is had I not been doctor. It's like I have the privilege Ah, uh of affirming the variety of ways that we are because folks would be like, well, she must know what she's talking about because she's a doctor or maybe this is research or, you know, both and kind of Mm -hmm. thinking. And so I wonder if I wasn't Dr. Yababla, if folks would take this seriously, which is also a problem. Yeah. And you know what? I didn't even think about that. But I wonder. Mm -hmm. I wonder if not for that. But also your very large body of work. Right. I was very fortunate enough that you asked me to be a part of Pretty Period. And I want you to talk about Pretty Period as well, because, again, you do so much to block white supremacy and lift us up. Mm -hmm. And I know for me in the work that I do, how challenging that can be. But I look at you from the outside and I say, wow, she really turns these what feels like some days insurmountable challenges into exceptional beauty. And I feel like Pretty Period was one of those moments. So can you talk about that project and that work? I mean, that project, hashtag Pretty Period, and the visual project that came out of that was really, again, when I think of the body of my work, most of it is a reflection of my own existence. You know, unlike many academics, you know, we're trained to separate ourselves from our work, allegedly, right? Mm -hmm. That there's this thing. What am I trying to say, Danielle? We're supposed to remove ourselves. Obje- oh, yeah. Thank you. Objectivity <laughs> shows you how much I don't do that. But yeah, we're supposed to be. You're like, what's that word? <laughs> right. We're supposed to be objective somehow. Thankfully for me, the blessing is that I was trained in Black Studies at Temple University, the home of Afrocentricity. And we were trained to center ourselves that as mm. Black people, particularly, that it is dangerous for us to separate ourselves from Black people in order to, quote unquote, study them. So I've always centered myself in the work that I do. So my dissertation was on skin bleaching in Ghana because I am a first generation Ghanaian born in America whose maternal aunt bleached her skin for most of her life. She died unexpectedly. I've always believed that it was because of the long-term effects of having those chemicals on and in her body. And so I wanted to research that. It became my dissertation, skin color politics. My expertise is because I'm a dark-skinned black girl who grew up in color-struck New Orleans, and I knew mm. that I was black-black, you know, from a very early age. I knew colorism from the time I was a child before I even had the language for colorism. And so pretty period for me, whereas a lot of my academic work seemed to, as you say, doom and gloom, it seemed to 
as a lot of the work we do as black people and for and about black people, our approach to fighting white supremacy oftentimes is unveiling and unmasking the insidious ways in which it operates and functions and impacts our lives, right? Which is necessary work, but it's also draining work. Mm -hmm. I remember coming to a point where it's like, I don't know how long I can keep doing this because I don't want to get out the bed every day to deal with this world, you know? And so there was a turning point for me where my approach to fighting white supremacy was to censor Black joy and Black possibility and Black hope. And I feel like it is an honor to our ancestors, a nod to our ancestors to recognize that, like, we're not supposed to be here, you know? Like, how did we survive? And I will not dismiss joy as a part of our survival mechanisms. And so Pretty Period was really about turning the conversation of colorism on its head in a particular way to say, yeah, we know these things are happening, not to dismiss them. We're going to continue to do work to call it out, but we're also going to affirm who we are. So no, I'm not pretty for a dark-skinned girl. I'm pretty, period, Mm -hmm. right? And so we can question beauty standards and the ways that they are seated in white supremacy and the ways in which oftentimes our beauty or our ability to be seen as beautiful is predicated on white normative standards of what beautiful is. And so if we're always comparing ourselves to white standards, we will always come out in the negative, you know? And so Pretty Period was about affirming who we are as we are, because again, I'm such a visual person. I know how much representation matters even centering my own experiences. But I know how important it is for us to be able to see ourselves, which is why I'm so in love with social media in this moment, for better or for worse. But I love that in this moment, we are not solely reliant upon the quote-unquote mainstream, black or white, to show us ourselves. So y'all can create whatever shows y'all want, but we also don't have to buy cable anymore. We don't have to tune into your Mm -hmm. network. We've got lots of creative, brilliantly creative folks creating content online. You know, I don't have cable. Yeah, (laughs) I I mean, a lot of people cut the cord, (laughs) you know? You know, I can see myself every single day on my phone, on my computer. You know, the benefit of this generation now has hashtags, Melanin Magic, Melanin Mondays. You know, (laughs) so many folks bigging up Melanin, so many folks honoring the beauty of dark skin. Like, that's beautiful to me that we don't have to wait for the mainstream to show us ourselves because... I was 24 years old before I saw, was it Alec Weck? Yeah, Alec Weck on the cover of Elle magazine. And I remember literally jumping up and down in the aisle of the A&P in New Orleans, seeing her image on that magazine. I was 24 years old, even though, you know, again, the dark, the light thing is all relative to experience, right? So what folks might have been saying, even now, what folks say are dark-skinned women in the media, they don't look like me. Their hair doesn't look like mine. So, yes, I affirm it. Thank God they're there. Thank God we do have some variety now. But I'm still not seeing myself. Now I can look on Instagram and see women my complexion and darker, and everybody's affirming that they're beautiful. That's magical to me. You know, I want to go back to one of the things that you just said with regard to centering Black joy as a way to battle against white supremacy because The idea, right, like there was something that just came up recently on social media, social media, black Twitter having to come to the rescue of uh, a young black woman entrepreneur, uh, you know, having her uh, hair products in Target Uh, Mm -hmm. and her commercial airs. You know, in the commercial, she's talking about the fact that she wants other young black girls to be able to see that they can be creators, that they can be entrepreneurs, that they can do these things. These Mm-hmm. White women came for mm-hmm. her in the comments, mm-hmm. 
in the reviews mm-hmm. to trash this woman's products. Mm-hmm. All and because she, all amazing. because she said in the video, mm-hmm. I hope that mm-hmm. young black girls yeah. can see that they can be entrepreneurs. Yep, all lives matter. I just don't, you know, some days, and I, you know, the question that I have for you is just like, how do you hold on to joy? For me, it's a struggle on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I host another show called Woke as Fuck, for Christ's sakes. Mm-hmm. Like, it is a daily mm-hmm. struggle to try and be that conscious every single day. Mm-hmm. How do you, in the face of white supremacy that just never seems to slow down, that never seems mm-hmm. to get exhausted, mm-hmm. continue to center joy in your life? I'm very particular about what I allow into my space. In a lot of ways, I'm willfully ignorant. I don't tune into everything. I don't watch the news. Call it what you want to. But if I did, I'd be depressed every day. It would be doom and gloom for me. I'm not willing to sacrifice myself, my health, my mental health, my well-being just to be informed. I know what the world is. I know what the world is going to be. I don't want to see it every single day. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want to fight it. That doesn't mean that Mm -hmm. I don't come to see it. But it means that I'm not centering my life on looking for it or being consumed by it. For me, I find it a privilege to be very particular about my environment, about who I let into my space, about what I let into my space. And quite honestly, my life is black as fuck. And (laughs) I feed it in black stuff. I go to black things. I talk to black people. I love on black people. My work is about black people. So yeah, white folks, they follow professional black girl. Lots of white folks follow and support my work. Even to know that season two of professional black girl was filmed by a white man and his wife. And I admit that I was hesitant at first to work with them for everything that I am, right? I want to support and work with black creators primarily. But my co-producer who was on the ground in New Orleans, which I needed because I wasn't in New Orleans at the time. She was like, look, I work with them. They are amazing. Trust me. I trusted her. And it was one of the best experiences creatively that I've had. And what I appreciate about them was the fact that he knew to step back. He knew this wasn't about him. Mm. He knew that this was about black women and girls. And he would always, always defer to me to make sure that the message was coming across how I wanted it to. And I appreciate him so much for knowing his place. And many people don't have that opportunity to work with white people in that way. And so... Yeah, I'm very particular about who I work with, you know, the kinds of environments that I'm in, the kind of experiences that I have. I recognize, again, that it is a privilege. I don't have to work with white people on a daily basis. And again, there are white folks who support my work, but they also know their place, right? They're not coming in my comments talking about, oh, when I was little or what about me? Most of the folks that come into the comments with that don't even follow the page. They Mm. probably found a post on their Explore page. Mm -hmm. They want to come and lend their voice. And so because I, as petty as I am, I'll let you write an entire paragraph thinking that you're about to engage and then I'll just delete it and block you. Move on. Scrolling is free. You don't have to stop here and say anything. But again, it is how white supremacy functions. It is the fact that you feel entitled Mm. to lend your voice to a space that is not for or about you. Mind Mm. your business. And I'm so very tired of folks always trying to create these false equivalencies, these comparison points that don't exist. Well, what if white women came out and said white girl magic? Or what if white women came out and said they were only doing their work for white women? You do say it. 
You don't say the words. But when Elle magazine, when Elekweck was on the cover of their magazine in 1997, the first time a black woman was on the cover of their magazine in their then 50-something year history, you've been saying all white girls. You've yes. been saying white yeah. girl magic. When we get one black girl on a billboard, you've been saying all white girls. When you come and you feel entitled to trash a black woman's company simply because she supports and affirms other black girls and wants to inspire other black girls, that's your entitlement because you think that it should be all white girls only. Like, you already do it. We just have the audacity to tell you so. You try to couch it as something else. You try to play it off. You don't want to call it what it is, which is white supremacy. And now that we're checking you on it, you feel some type of way. It can't work that way. No. You can't silence us. It can't work that way. What I have always loved about you and your work is the audaciousness of it. To me, it is the visualization of how dare you, right? And, and it's so profound because the entitlement is so very real. And so deep oh, yeah. that a majority don't even know that they are being entitled, right? That they are showcasing no their privilege on a regular basis. No doubt. And I mean, I'm proud of my work. And again, I do see it as a privilege. But I also have to remind folks that loving us costs. Mm. It costs me to be audacious in this way. It costs me to be unapologetic I've never been on a tenure track in the academy. I'm not even working in the academy right now for my it's a self-imposed sabbatical for my own mental health because for as black as my work is, for as much as the public appreciates it, the academy does not because I won't apologize because I won't conform because I have to argue with editors about capitalizing the B in black Mm-mm. that I have to concede to creating a footnote to explain why I capitalized B, like I'm constantly having to justify and white-splain my existence because your audience is white and that's who I should be writing for, that doesn't affirm me, that doesn't work for me, but it also doesn't pay my bills, right? So I always let people know that like loving us costs. I'm constantly asking for support. I don't enjoy asking folks for money, but if I don't, I won't get to do the work that I do because the mainstream is not supportive of my work in that way particularly not black mainstream. White folks love it. They want to figure out a way to do it, but still they want to figure out a way to do it that won't make white people uncomfortable. The thing that's the hardest is to know that a lot of black creative spaces are also concerned with making white folks comfortable. And there's too much at stake for me just in my own sense of self, you know, and there have been lots of folks, mentors, my father, (laughs) my family, like, can you just get a job with benefits, please? (laughs) You know, folks who... Want me to adjust, you know, and to conform just so that I can be okay. And I'm okay. You know, the love from my community does feed me. But, you know, I I just I think that that is what makes the work so amazing. And I think that that is what makes professional black girl so wonderful is that the community helped you do it, right? That it was literally for us by us. And I think that that's what makes the project so extraordinary the platform so extraordinary because you know you put out a call and folks Mm -hmm. returned with an answer and i think that that says a lot about what you are doing how you are centering us and i just i appreciate you so incredibly much for it one of the questions that i am asking my guests at the end of our interviews is how do you dr yaba blay get in the pm (laughs) mood to change the world 
how do you get yourself inspired to change the world? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, I, like, I think we inspire me. I think my community inspires me. I think that, again, I am centered in us and our experiences and our culture and our history. I am absolutely always inspired when I read stories about folks who have passed on, folks who have done this work in generations past, our ancestors. Like I read a piece on Zora Neale Hurston the other day that brought me to tears and it made me just want to continue to do the work in her honor. You know, that we have folks who fought for us in a time where they had so much more to lose in doing Mm. so, including their lives. You know, not to say that we can't lose our lives for it, but like just in the moments of Jim Crow and the moment of enslavement and conversation, we had folks who were audacious then, yeah. you know? And so if they could do it then, my privileged ass can do it now, you know? So I think I'm inspired by their struggle. I'm inspired when I look at my grandbaby, you know, in the world that she lives in. And as much as it's better in a lot of ways, it could be worse. You know, I'm inspired by her, by her generation, by, the youth to try and do as much as I can to continually change their experience because these changes are incremental, right? I know that I won't live to see the end of white supremacy. My grandbaby might not live to see the end of white supremacy, but like we can't deny that our experiences of it now are incrementally different than the experiences that our ancestors has so I can't afford not to fight. Well, I hope that you continue the fight. I appreciate the work that you do. Professional Black Girl is my happy place. And what is next? What is next for Professional Black Girl? I don't know. I try to stay present as best as I can. Good. My mother would love you. She's a yogi. (laughs) And she tells me all the time, Danielle, stay present. Danielle, be in the moment. Yeah, and try. And again, the word is try. I think, you know, I, I just said this the other day at an event that I did. Folks love to ask what's next. I choose to take that as an affirmation of the work that I do. It means they want to see more. But I also caution folks, particularly when speaking to creatives, like mm-hmm. that question can produce lots of anxiety. There's a lot of pressure to create. There's a lot of pressure to keep up. It's also part of the reason why a lot of folks work is done in haste and it's raggedy. Yeah. They're trying to yeah. keep up and they're trying to hurry up and put stuff out there. And again, we deserve better. We deserve more. We deserve people's concerted effort and attention. And so try not to rush us (laughs) into doing new stuff, into doing more, particularly if you're not supporting it, right? But I think Professional Black Girl is just but one manifestation of the work that I want to do. So I'm looking at the variety of ways that I can continue to create and sustain community, as well as do other creative work. I think my overall goal is to continue to educate us yes. about us. You know, yes. one of the things that makes me want to peel my skin off is to see young people online fighting about racism and not even knowing what racism is. You know, folks online talking about racism and not even knowing what racism is, not understanding context, not understanding white supremacy, not understanding history. And I recognize that I've had the opportunity to teach about these things, but in a very privileged space called the academy. I'm wondering how I can bring that type of information to the community in ways that they can access. So I'm working on it. I mean, it sounds like you are working literally on everything and all, <laughs> and, and all the time, yeah. as many creatives 
do. Dr. Yaba Blay, thank you so much for joining PM Mood. I appreciate you thank so you. much. And thank you so thank much you for, for the beauty that is professional black girl. It just inspires me every single day to keep going. And I can't tell you how much inspiration I need on a regular basis to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for tuning in, for following, for sharing, for liking, and definitely for affirming the work that I do. I appreciate you. If you want to hear more from me, check out my live daily political talk show, Woke AF Daily, at DNR Studios. You can subscribe now at www.dnrstudios.com slash woke. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.